Please proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you very much. May it please the court. The district court convicted KT Berge of failing to register under SORNA, finding his prior state conviction triggered SORNA's residual clause. We're asking Your Honors to reverse for three reasons. First, the... um, Even if the fact-based approach applies to the residual clause, the district court still erred by considering a host of accusatory investigative details about the prior guilty plea conviction, none of which Berge admitted in the prior judicial record. So we're asking your honors to remand for acquittal or dismissal, or at the very least to remand for the district court to consider dismissal and guilt without reference to the extra record evidence. Second, The residual clause is void for vagueness. Under either the fact-based approach or the categorical approach, it's void on its face and in this case. So the district court erred by failing to dismiss. Third, the district court also erred in the first instance by concluding that the categorical, I'm sorry, by concluding that the fact-based approach even applied. Instead, the categorical approach should apply to the residual clause. And if the categorical approach applies, the prior conviction was overbroad, a point the government does not contest. After all, the prior uh, conviction, the statute, only prohibited permitting a minor to engage in a harmful activity, whereas the residual clause uh, requires a sex offense. So the district court erred by... Counsel, I thought thought you uh, uh, agreed or conceded that that our panel is foreclosed by Hill on that argument. Well... you're preserving it for the in-bank court, so why why spend our time on that if if I'm right? I I we we have argued that uh, uh, Hill is uh, or that the Supreme Court case of Davis and Demai are intervening precedent, but we realize that this court is not likely to conclude that, so uh, we have uh, raised the argument to preserve it um, for the court's review. But the uh, the. The first argument that I would start with, if I could, is the fact-based approach. And uh, in this case, um, the the question for this court to answer is what what this court meant in Hill when it said that judges could look to, quote, any reliable evidence to ascertain the factual nature of a prior conviction under the residual clause. And the correct answer to that question, the one urged by Berge, is that in a guilty plea context, Courts should look to the uh, facts the defendant admits in the prior judicial record, as well as related statutes. On the other hand, the uh, answer we think is wrong, the one reached by the district court, is to permit the government to come in and retry the prior case with evidence and testimony that was never part of the prior judicial record and that the defendant never admitted to. Counsel, they're not retrying the case. It was a plea case, right? It was. So, so in sentencing in a plea case, you're saying that the only the only evidence that can be considered in sentencing is whatever comes out in the change of plea hearings and the plea agreement. Well, they, I mean, this is this is a not a sentencing case. This was a, a trial conviction, and uh, uh, we're appealing also the ruling on the motion to dismiss. And our point is that the government was allowed to relitigate the prior offense with evidence that was never part of the prior record and that the defendant never admitted to. 
And the difference between these two approaches is very important here because uh, if we only look to the documents that Berge says should have been considered, then he had a reasonable chance of success below. Can uh, I ask whereas, counsel for yeah. clarification, when, when you talk, about, are you talking about applying Shepard? No, Your Honor. We are, it's a similar analysis to Shepard, but, um, you know, Shepard analysis just looks to a limited set of documents to determine only elements. And we are arguing for, uh, under the fact-based approach, the court can determine brute facts, and it's not limited to only Shepard documents. For example, um, uh, it, it could, they could look to uh, an admission at uh, a sentencing hearing in the prior record, or if a prior offense is a federal offense, they could look to uh, unobjected to portions. Wait, wait you, can, you can look to that under, under Shepard. Okay. Or... Um, I, I apologize, Your Honor, but the main difference here is that we want to focus on what the defendant admitted in the prior offense, and it's different from Shepard analysis. Didn't, didn't, Hill, but, re yes. didn't Hill reject that? Uh, Hill did reject strict Shepard analysis. It said uh, that's we are not... That's essentially what you're arguing for. It's, <clears throat> it's, it's not precisely what we're arguing for. We're, what we're arguing for is... For simply the court to look to the facts, which is unlike Shepard, uh, that the defendant admitted in the prior record, and that's we think exactly, that still exactly supports our fact-based approach argument in the sense. <clears throat> yes, that's precisely what Shepard says. Facts admitted in the guilty plea. Well, it, it says that uh, the the court looks to elements admitted in in the in in the guilty plea. Uh, and we're arguing for uh, facts admitted in the guilty plea. And we think that Hill supports uh, our argument in this regard because it did look to uh, the record of conviction. It looked to the relevant statutes to determine that the defendant in that case was a sex offender uh, under SORNA, uh, which is much more circumscribed than the uh, approach the district court took here which was uh, you know, allowing not just a mini trial with new evidence to determine the nature of the prior, but an entire trial. And uh, we also think that the case law from the other circuits that also address the residual clause, Price, Dodge, Bayan, and Daly, they also support our argument because they also look to just facts the defendant admitted in the prior judicial record, such as at plea hearings and plea colloquies and factual bases. So we think that those cases support our argument as well. And, Mr. Dean, yeah. Mr. Dean, this is Judge Smith. Um, mm -hmm. What evidence was introduced that you contend was unreliable that wouldn't meet the test of being reliable evidence? We we would contend that uh, essentially any evidence beyond the facts that he admitted. Well, what was this? What specific evidence in this case are you right. saying was not reliable? For example, uh, the forensic interview of the victim, the testimony of the forensic scientist who did the DNA testing, the uh, testimony of the nurse examiner who examined the alleged victim, those were the most prejudicial evidence um, because they alleged that Berge uh, raped the victim. So considering that evidence, Berge had no chance of success. And the reason that that evidence is unreliable is because that did not form the basis for his actual conviction. He did not admit to uh, raping the minor victim. So that's that's why it's unreliable under the fact-based approach. And that, that, may be that, a basis for, that may be a basis for challenging it, but that doesn't mean it's not evidence that in and of itself 
could be reliable. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just puzzled a little bit by your approach by not showing us why there's unfairness in the uh, consideration of this evidence on the basis of the qualities of the evidence itself. Uh, I see what you're saying. And, and one example would be that, uh, you know, the forensic, the actual evidence, uh, the DNA evidence had been destroyed. So uh, that inhibited Bergie's ability to confront the witnesses and the evidence against him. Well, that's to um, me is a lot better and, argument than what you've been making. Well, I, I apologize for that, but um, I would I would make that argument. And I would also point to uh, the, the text of the statute, SORNA, requires someone to register if they are a sex offender, and they are a sex offender if they have been convicted of a qualifying sex offense. It does not say that um, they are, uh, they, they, that SORNA is triggered if they have been merely accused of or charged of a qualifying offense. So we think that the text of the statute supports our argument. And we also think that uh, constitutional and policy considerations support our argument, especially the Fifth Amendment requirement of fair notice. And I would just offer an illustration here. If we take a snapshot in time of the time period that in the indictment, the federal indictment, when Berge was alleged to have failed to register. Uh, this Judge Loken, fair notice of when and of what? Right. What I'm talking about is fair notice that Berge was a sex offender subject to federal registration at the time that he failed to register charged in the indictment. If, if he had pulled out SORNA and read it, he would not have been able to know that he was a sex offender because the district court employed a version of the fact-based approach that was unprecedented under the, uh, under the residual clause, so he did not know that the district court would find that he was a sex offender by essentially allowing the government to retry the case. It was a novel reading of the statute that expanded its criminal scope. So in that sense, the uh, district court's reading of the statute deprived Berge of fair notice. And that also is relevant to the vagueness argument. And we think that our argument is also consistent with judicial economy because there was no need to have this entire trial to relitigate the prior offense this case could have been disposed of even on briefs with stipulated exhibits or at, at most a uh, very brief hearing or trial. And I'd like to also turn to the void for vagueness argument. And a point I would like to stress here is that under any fact-based approach, the residual clause was void for vagueness. Again, I would offer the, yes? Counsel, you you can't do a facial attack in in this situation. You have you if you you can't prevail on this argument in a criminal case, unless it was void for vagueness as applied to him. Right, and we are three Supreme Court case law is clear on that, and yet you argue otherwise. No, we argued that the statute was void for vagueness as applied in this case and facially. So we have argued both of those, and and. We think that the statute. Why, why do you argue? Okay, why do you argue facial? All your 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 articulation is facial. You you I agree. You're about one sentence in your brief which says, "Oh, and it was a, a, a void vague as applied to him too," but you never you never develop that. So I, I read your I read your brief as as void for vagueness facially, and the government points out that that's not cognizable in this in this context. Well, I think that we, we did argue it was void for vagueness as applied, and, and, and 
The reason, uh, in part, is again because of a lack of due process notice. If we uh, take a snapshot of the uh, time frame when KT Berge was alleged to have failed to register in the indictment, and he got the SORNA statue out and he read it, he would not have been able to determine that he was a sex offender under SORNA because that determination was a factual determination to be made post-indictment. And also, even if we assume that the district court in the future... It didn't, counsel, didn't he, didn't he know what he did? Well, he did not if, know... If, if, the, if, the if the South Dakota statute was overbroad in this sense, in that some violations would not be sore offenses, he, know, he knew what he did. And, and what he did, as, as developed in, the, in this proceeding, uh, was clearly a, a, a sex offense of a harmful to minors. Well, so I, mean, we, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand how it can be void as applied. Right. Well, what I would say is that, I mean, there's a difference between uh, if we assume the evidence in the trial is accurate, what he knew he did, and then what he could have reasonably anticipated the district court in the later proceeding to, to find, even if we assume that the district court would have only considered the judgment and the charging instrument and the statute and the factual basis, uh, all Berge admitted to was permitting a minor to engage in harmful activity. And well, that's, uh, that's back to your Shepard argument. I thought we were talking void for vagueness now. Right. What the, the, the reason that I bring that up is because it shows that the statute is void for vagueness as applied to him because he did not engage in conduct that was clearly prohibited by SORNA when he absconded uh, from his state supervision. And I would reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal, if I may. All right. Thank you, Mr. Dean. Thank you. Mr. Coloner. Thank you, Your Honor. Are you able to hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you. May it please the court and my colleague, Mr. Dean. I'm Kevin Colliner from the U.S. Attorney's Office in South Dakota, uh, presenting on behalf of the government. The government is asking for the conviction in this case to be affirmed. The central questions before the court in this appeal have been resolved by this court and other circuits, all in unison. Uh, this court in Hill found that the text and structure of the relevant SORNA subsections are unambiguous and district courts are allowed to do just what the district court did here when discerning whether a defendant's prior state conviction is a specified offense against a minor. Courts are not confined to the categorical approach or to the modified categorical approach. And as this court explained in depth in Hill, uh, that is what the statute plainly directs. That means courts are allowed to review reliable evidence to discern whether a defendant's prior conviction involved a SORNA-covered sex offense. The court Coleman, what's, this is Judge Smith. What's your view of the circumference of reliable evidence in terms of the kinds of things that, be, that can be considered? Judge Smith, the district courts are well-versed in making reliability determinations guided and restrained by the rules of evidence. Uh, that's the government's view of, of what applies here. Those evidentiary rules regarding general admissibility, foundation, witness competence, hearsay, authenticity, those are all rules of evidence that, uh, that govern reliability. They, they provide appropriate boundaries. Uh, those are the rules that were applied here. Uh, the government called live witnesses. Those witnesses were subjected to cross-examination. And critically, uh, on this issue of the uh, forensic interview found on DVD exhibit number two in the trial, 
Berge stipulated on the record that he was waiving hearsay and foundation objections to that forensic interview. In other words, that's a critical point. He contested the evidence based on relevance because he thought none of this evidence should be allowed, but he waived those objections as to the reliability uh, of that evidence. He waived foundation and he waived uh, hearsay objections. Uh, so our position is that he should not now be able to argue that that was unreliable uh, because that was a, an issue that was waived in order to protect the, the minor victim from having to testify. Um, the evidence that was presented in this case, uh, the witnesses, the exhibits, was just the sort of evidence uh, that would be presented if the underlying case were to have been you know, tried before the district court. Uh, there were objections largely based on relevance, uh, but I think it's telling that uh, on this, in this appeal, there really is no, and it goes to the question you asked earlier, Judge Smith, it goes to, uh, there, there are no real um, objections based on the reliability of any particular piece of evidence. Uh, what I think uh, Mr. Berg is arguing uh, is, again, what was decided in Hill. Uh, he wants none of that evidence to be uh, reviewed because he believes a categorical, categorical approach should be applied, and that has been rejected. Um, so our view uh, on the constraints of this reliability are simply the constraints that are provided in the rules of evidence that district courts apply all the time. Counsel, if if, uh, if this had been tried to a jury, uh, what would Apprendi, uh, Apprendi, in your view, require the jury to determine? Uh, our view is that it is a fact question for the fact finder to decide uh, whether or not a, a defendant is a, a sex offender under SORNA. So uh, our view is that a jury under Apprendi uh, in order to comply with the Sixth Amendment, would have to make the the finding that the court did here, uh, acting as fact finder, that in fact, uh, parsing through the SORNA statute, that um, in, in this case, subsection 7I applies uh, to this defendant. So we are not arguing that it's a purely legal question uh, that only courts are to determine. Would the jury only parse out the SORNA question, uh, you know, the, any conduct by its nature is a sex offense against a minor, or would it also have to determine what the, uh, what the opposing counsel says is the overbreadth of the South Dakota statute? Uh, well, and that gets into whether the, uh, the categorical or the uh, circumstance-specific approach applies, and uh, our view is that they would be determining it under SORNA, uh, not collaterally attacking the uh, the prior conviction in South Dakota. And by the way, uh, the Price case I think is instructive on this, just because it it came to the uh, the circuit court in kind of a similar with a similar record in that the underlying offense. Uh, was not by its nature necessarily a sex offense. It was a assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature, a, a South Carolina common law offense. And so it required a, a circumstance-specific approach to discern those underlying facts. Now, I think it's also um, important to note that a number of these cases, this case included, Hill included, uh, were Alford pleas. 
so you know why is that important well it's important because what a defendant then is required to admit on the record in the state case is essentially nothing right it's a no contest plea that's what we had here and that's what i believe well that that's what that happened in hill as well it doesn't say that in the hill opinion but i listened to the oral arguments uh in hill and that was discussed that that too was an alford plea um i point that out simply because that i think further uh reflects uh the need for a circumstance specific approach because if you're only allowed to look at what's admitted as part of the the plea colloquy you're not going to find much in those cases uh i would uh now turn to the constitutional vagueness argument you know in part this argument was also rejected in uh by this court in hill because the court found uh that the statute itself is not vague and here's the quote we agree with the fourth circuit that chevron deference is inappropriate in these circumstances because the statute statutory provisions at issue are unambiguous regarding the proper method of analysis um it begs the question if a statute is unambiguous how could it also be unconstitutionally vague um judge loken as you pointed out the law is clear that the challenge has to be an as applied challenge to be cognizable in a criminal setting like this one this defendant knew full well that he had a registration requirement he registered 11 separate times before before he was charged with this offense he he in fact was convicted in state court for failing to register on one prior occasion his initial suspended sentence was revoked and he spent two years in prison because he failed to register under the south dakota registry system so there was really no question that he knew that registration sex offender registration was at issue in his case we firmly believe that the the issues that are presented in this appeal have been decided by this court and by all other courts that have looked at it in in unison i really have nothing further that i want to add for the court but if there are any questions i have a fair amount of time left on the clock i don't see any questions thank you mr collier mr dean your rebuttal thank you your honor i start uh with uh the vagueness argument again and i would note that the hill court did not hold that the residual clause was not void for vagueness it just held that it was unambiguous in uh in um compelling the fact-based approach it was only unambiguous with respect to the statutory manner of analysis it did not ever reach a void for vagueness issue and as far as uh the government's as applied argument um you know we we agree bergy knew that he was required to register under state law but our argument is that he did not know that he was a sex offender at the time of the indicted conduct uh he did not know he was a sex offender under sorna so that that's that's our our argument we're not arguing he didn't know that he was a sex offender under uh state law um and again i'd like to just illustrate with if you take a snapshot in time 
of when Berge is alleged to have failed to register, then uh, he, he could not have known that he was a sex offender because that was a post-indictment factual determination. And for that reason and the others we've argued, we would ask the court to reverse. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dean. Thank you also, Mr. Colliner. We appreciate uh, both counsel's presence in our virtual forum this morning and the uh, arguments you've provided to us. We have uh, read your briefing and will continue to study the matter and render decision in due course. Thank you both.